Well, good day. It's great to see you all. And I'm glad it's not so hot as uh, the last few weeks, although if you were here before the service and saw me in the 8 o'clock shirt, you'll realise why I go through four tops on a Sunday. Uh, it's like hypercolour. But we're not here to hear about my dressing issues. <laughs> Our purpose today is to be so captured by Jesus' lordship that it becomes our delight and desire to go make disciples everywhere we go. Father, we want to pray that uh, you help us come to terms with uh, this great commission, that we might understand why you have commanded this, why you want us to be on your mission, uh, and what it means over this term as we learn about being disciple makers, how, how we can do that, how to be equipped how to think through the ins and outs. Please sharpen us up for your work. Amen. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Uh, and so begins what has come to be known as the Great Commission, as Jesus calls his followers together and gives them this one command right at the end which is a command that's supposed to dominate their lives and horizons a commission uh, a challenge a command to go around making disciples everywhere they go and i think of all the commands of jesus christ i can think of few others that are so universally loved and so universally dreaded by Christians at one and the same time as go and make disciples. Uh, there you go, I hear fear down the front row already. Uh, it's loved by some who've embraced it and have given up everything to go about it. it. It defines who they are and shapes everything in their lives. They know what their purpose is in life and they're determined to do it. Uh, for others, uh, and maybe this is uh, more common and maybe this is you, they rather wish Jesus had never spoken those words. Uh, uh, they might even come back to him and say, anything but that, Jesus, you know what? I'll, I'll even love my enemy, like you said. I'll, I'll forgive my brother seven times, 70 times if I have to. I'll even, even go sell all my possessions and give them to the poor if I have to. But please, please, please don't make me go do this. Don't make me go and make disciples. Uh, and as a result of the very strong reactions that people have one way or the other, there's perhaps no other paragraph of the Bible that has had so much ink spilled over it or had so many words spoken about it in pulpits, in churches throughout the world over the years, or had so many discussions about it over morning tea and in Bible study groups and, and wherever. But deep down, I suspect that we all know that this is something that's foundational to the church's existence. In fact, we know we wouldn't be here today unless someone somewhere took that seriously, right? We wouldn't be here as Christians. We wouldn't be as a church unless God's people were out there making disciples. Uh, and our purpose, we know that it's our purpose here on earth deep down. We know that making disciples is what Jesus is on about, and we know that he, that's what he wants us to be on about. But whichever way you look at it, whether you're someone who's thrilled by the challenge and excited and into it all the time, or someone who shakes in your boots any time you see this command or any like it, whichever way, it's good to acknowledge right up front that it's a daunting task. Making disciples is hard and daunting. It's daunting because making disciples is going to involve asking people 
to make the most profound life change imaginable, to abandon their chosen idols and to worship Jesus as Lord of all. I mean, most of us are scared to even talk to people about little changes that we'd like them to make, you know, stop picking your nose, stop, you know, whatever it is, uh, let alone this one massive one. Uh, someone was telling me this morning that they had been, were talking to someone else a week ago at church and they had a little spider uh, dangling from a web, but they were too afraid to say, uh, uh, just, can I just reach over and <laughs> grab the spider that's hanging off your forehead? <laughs> You know, if we can't do that, how are we going to ask people to turn their whole lives around? Um, It's daunting also because of the barrage of criticism that seems to be levelled against Christians in the media, particularly against Christian leaders who stand up for something. It's not uncommon to hear now uh, the accusation that Christianity really only has a destructive effect on people and society. Uh, The mood in our culture has made a massive swing to let everyone choose their own path when it comes to matters of sexuality and gender and ethics and religious beliefs, even when people make choices that are not for their own good or for the common good. Yet compared to others around the world, what we face is mild. In many parts of the world, Christians are intimidated, they're locked up, or worse, for proselytising, or even for suggesting that Jesus might trump other religions. Then there's just the sheer busyness of life. Uh, which makes it seem so daunting as well. So many things are competing for our time and attention and our energy. Uh, some of them are really important and legitimate. Some of them are unnecessary distractions. So how are we going to squeeze this into to a really busy schedule? And couple that with the fact that most of us are quite unsure what it would even involve to go making disciples or, or how to go about it. We feel ill-equipped, we don't know what to do or what to say, and so the whole thing feels a bit like, or it can feel a bit like this enormous mountain, can't it? You're staring at it and think, I've got to walk up that. Uh, isn't there a, can I go around it? <laughs> Is there another way? Uh, it's just daunting. And so if we're going to take Jesus seriously and be about his business individually and as a church, we're going to need some very deep, driving, life-shaping convictions, aren't we, to enable us to give ourselves to this task of teaching and persuading people to follow Jesus to become his followers. We've got to be absolutely convinced if we're going to step up. And so this term, that's what we're doing. We're working through what it means to make disciples. Uh, so a lot of the time we'll be looking at the Great Commission. You're going to become very familiar with the Great Commission. It's going to be a Bible reading for the next four weeks or five weeks or something like that. Uh, hopefully you'll have memorised it uh, by then, by about a month's time. But what we're going to do is unpack this one paragraph, one idea at a time. As we seek to understand what Jesus is really asking from us, working through why making disciples is the key task that he's left for us to do and why it matters so much that we engage in it. We're going to be working out what it means to do it and and how best to go about it. We'll be thinking through uh, what it involves and what it will look like to be someone who can confidently and joyfully be about our master's business. And by the end, I trust that you'll discover that why there's no more glorious, wonderful, exciting and fulfilling task than being a person whose ambition in life is to make a disciple of everyone we meet everywhere we go. And that you'll come away feeling empowered, equipped and motivated to do it. That's the aim. By way of introduction to the Great Commission, I want to make a couple of general comments about it 
and then spend the majority of our time on the question of why. Why is it so important to Jesus and why should it be so important to us to be people who make disciples? Because I think if we don't get that question right of why, then we won't bother learning the how and who and the what and all the rest of the questions, right? You know, you've got to understand why it's so important. But let me make three general comments about the Great Commission first. The first comment is about the context. Uh, the Great Commission, uh, if you hadn't picked up from seeing it in the, the Bible reading there, is the last paragraph of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's biography of Jesus. It's the last words of Jesus that Matthew records. It's not the last words Jesus said. I mean, you could read uh, Luke and Acts for that. Uh, but but he wants to end on it, and it comes right after the dramatic and climactic events of Jesus' execution on the cross after a showdown that had been building for about three years. But even more importantly, it comes right after Jesus has defeated death. Jesus had been buried, and the only people in Matthew's account so far who've met him alive again are the lovely women who'd gone to the tomb at the start of chapter 28 to uh, prepare his mortal remains uh, and, and take care of his body. And it must have come as a, a stunning and rude shock, as at first they're confronted by an angel, of all people, uh, telling them that Jesus is not here, he is risen. Uh, that'd be pretty hard enough. But then five minutes later, meeting Jesus himself in the flesh, alive again. And he tells them one sentence to these ladies. He says, don't be afraid. Oh, yeah, right. Just met a dead guy who's walking around again. Um, just met an angel for the first time. Um, don't be afraid, but go and tell the disciples to meet me up in Galilee, where I said. Meanwhile, there's this paragraph uh, in the middle of the chapter. We're told that the soldiers who were guarding the tomb have been paid off by the Jewish authorities to start spreading lies about the resurrection. And Matthew is the only gospel that has this section in it, and it comes right before the Great Commission. It's very interesting. Verse 11. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and we'll keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. The soldiers, they're coerced, they're bribed into telling everyone the disciples came and stole the bodies while they slept, while they nodded off at the guard post. Which, mind you, is just an unbelievable lie. Uh, if it was true that they'd slept on duty guarding the tomb of the guy who's just been executed as a threat to Caesar's throne, as a guy who said, I'm going to rise from the dead three days later, several times, guarding that tomb, right, who the whole crowds had demanded and chanted for his head, they'd have been executed for gross negligence, if that was true, for their dereliction of duty. And it's interesting that bit is only in Matthew's gospel and it comes right before Matthew takes us up to the mountain where Jesus gives the Great Commission. 
And I wonder, and this is just my own kind of speculation, I wonder if it's a dramatic way of illustrating that when the disciples are sent out into the world, they're going to have to compete as we have to compete with absolute lies and fabrications that are bandied around about Jesus. Lies that have been told from day one and which people are still using today to disbelieve the message. Lies which are simply unsubstantiated and unbelievable, but which people latch onto because they want them to be true. It's not that they are true. You know, you can see right through them if you sit down and investigate, but things that they want to be true and because their heart is in believing this lie, they, they, they believe it. Which means when we go to make disciples, we're in a battle. We're in a battle for the truth. And Jesus is aware of the lies, he's aware of the difficulties, but he still turns up to send them on this incredible mission that has transformed countless lives down through the ages and is still transforming lives today. And I can think of people who are sitting here today who've become believers and disciples just in the last uh, couple of years and it's really incredible and wonderful and Jesus is still doing his work through us. A mission to proclaim a shift in reality has taken place. Because sins have now been paid for. Death has now been defeated. And that shift in reality demands attention and it demands change. So that's the context. The second observation I want to make is about the disciples and and what they were feeling that day when Jesus met them on the mountain. Did you notice what was going on for them in their hearts and minds in verse 16? Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And personally, I find that incredibly helpful. Here they are, face to face with the man they have followed for several years, the one they'd left job and family to be with, the one who's they've watched him be arrested and executed and buried they know where the tomb is and now he's here with them alive in the flesh and they have this weird mix of worship and doubt worship because it's true and and they can see it they know it that it's it's in front of them he he's conquered death which means he's so much more than just another man everything he said about himself and demonstrated about himself and his power is true he he is god become man he is As chapter 1 said, he would be God with us, Emmanuel, as the angel announced. And he therefore is worthy of all worship. And they bow down and they worship. But they were hesitant. They still had doubts, even as they worshipped. Even though he's standing right there in front of them. Because it's not normal. I mean, what would it be like to... To see someone who you had known, who had died, and now they're there, let alone Jesus. And, and I find that incredibly reassuring, that even the apostles face-to-face with Jesus still had this moment of doubt. They still had to fully come to terms with the reality shift that had taken place. The third observation about the Great Commission is, is its universality. This is a subject of much debate, but did you notice that Jesus repeats the same word four times throughout the Great Commission. It's the little word, all. He says all four times. All authority has been given to me. 
Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And surely I'm with you always. Literally all days to the very end of the age. The Great Commission is universal. It is not a temporary thing for just some people sometimes. It is universal in its scope. Disciples have to be made of every nation, all nations. It's not limited to a small group of people or to people of a certain cultural background or to Westerners or or it's not limited to what we do inside the church with our own kids and our own grandkids. It's universal in the obedience that Jesus is calling for. He wants every part of our lives, obeying everything he's commanded. That is, we are to be and we're to be making disciples who are not half-hearted, only kind of in it, who go, oh, yeah, that Jesus thing's all right, but, you know, I've got better things to do. A, a, a true disciple isn't someone who just gives a bit of their lives to Jesus and stops there. It's not someone who accepts the, the bits that suit them or who's someone with one foot in the kingdom but one foot back out in the world, who's someone who's looking back with regret and longing at the world like Lot's wife we saw a few weeks ago. And it's for all time, even to the end of the age. That is this commission, this calling, this command to go make disciples is not just a temporary thing for the 11 men there that day. It's something Jesus is calling us all to in every era. This is the mission of the church until he returns. Just like we were thinking about last week from 2 Corinthians 5, today is the day of salvation. That's what this day is, until he returns. Today's the day of the salvation and we are his ambassadors. But it's the first all that I want to come back to and focus on for the rest of our time. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Because that's the reason, that's the motivation, that's the true driver for going and making disciples. See, what if not this is going to get us up and out of our seats to go do it? What's going to drive us on when we're daunted by the mountain in front of us and by the task? What's going to compel us when the magnitude of what's being asked seems beyond us? What's going to drive us to our knees in prayer that God might change our complacent hearts and that he might change the complacent hearts of those around us and and that he might strengthen our feeble knees and he might steady our trembling hands and he might steal our backbones? What's going to mould and shape our desires so that we long to share share Jesus and call people to come to him and to come join us as his disciples? This is ultimately it. Jesus has been given all authority. Jesus is supreme. He is the Lord. Because it's only when you begin to fathom just who Jesus really is and and what's happening in reality and the, the magnitude of Jesus' claims on this world and how glorious and powerful and wonderful that he is that will ever be compelled and driven into action. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking that one statement. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. What does it mean that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? And why is that going to drive us? Well, you get a sense of it if you just kind of read through 
Matthew's Gospel because it's been on display throughout Jesus' whole ministry, something of his authority. Uh, and I'm, we're going to go back to se- chapter 7 and verse uh, 28 and 29 and then work our way forward uh, very quickly. Um, in Matthew chapter 7 in 28, uh, right at the end of the chapter, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There was something about what Jesus said and how he said it that made people stop and take notice. In fact, made them come out in their thousands to hear him preaching without food in a countryside days from anywhere. There was something that made them walk off the job when he said to and come follow him for years. And I take it it wasn't just his personal magnetism or his gravitas or his charisma. It wasn't that he had a deep, deep, rich voice like John Law's or like David Blouse. You know, <laughs> you know, the voice that could sell albums, someone said to me, and I said, it does. He's a narrator on a kid's CD. Anyway, it wasn't that. It was what he said. They knew its authority when they heard it. But it wasn't just his teaching. Straight after that, in chapters 8 and 9, you can just look at the headings there, you see his authority over... Uh, all the things of this world, his authority, for instance, over disease with a touch, a leper is healed. Um, with a word, the centurion's daughter is healed. Um, with, with a word, the, he caused the paralyzed man who came through the roof to stand up and walk, and not like at a Benny Hinn concert, which I've been to, um, where a person is tentative and sort of staggers up, saying that they've been in a wheelchair and things, and he says, jump, and they go, really? And kind of, and there's ushers waiting to catch them in case they stumble and fall because they're caught up in the moment. They haven't really been cured. With Jesus, it's absolutely real. As Jesus spoke, the man's bones straightened. They assumed their normal density. His tendons flexed and stretched. His atrophied muscles filled in. His sagging skin went taut. And as he stood up, he uh, picked up his bed in that dusty shaft of light coming from the ceiling. Uh, He bent down, picked up his mat, threw it over his shoulder and walked out to meet his friends, jumping for joy, carrying on like Australia had won the Tri-Nations or something, you know. Um, we see his authority over the natural processes of the world as he stands in the stern of a heaving boat about to capsize in a storm and drown everyone on board but with a word the raging sea goes calm and, and the winds go dead still we see his authority over Satan and his minions as he casts out demons from, uh, from those who've been tormented all their lives uh, and, and now the disciples in chapter 28, have witnessed his absolute power and mastery even over death itself. That is, Jesus is Lord over every element of this created order. I'll let that sing in. Jesus is Lord over every element of this created order. Hebrews 1 talks about Jesus sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun comes up every day because Jesus says so. 
not a sparrow falls to the ground without his say-so. Every hair on your head is numbered. For some he has to count higher than others. Because <laughs> he says so. But Jesus saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me is not just a statement about the power that he wields, which is the power of God because he is God and who can do things. It's much more than that. What he's saying is that he is the sole determiner of our destinies. Now, he's already taught that several times before he died, but I don't think it really dawned on the disciples until now. And I wonder if it's really sunk in for us. Where you and I stand and where every single person stands with God now and in eternity is all bound up with Jesus. In Matthew 10, verse 40, he puts it most positively and most mildly. Chapter 10 and verse 40, when he says, he sends them out on mission, and he says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, that is, the Father. You welcome Jesus, you're welcoming God into your life. And lots of people, I think, might be happy to agree with that. That's the mildest statement, as if he's saying he's a way to God, maybe just one way to God, but that's not what he's saying. And you can tell that from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, where he puts it much more strongly. 11.27 All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You cannot know God except that Jesus Christ chooses to reveal God to you. No one can know God except that Jesus Christ chooses to reveal him to you, to them. No, no one else can do it. You can't find God on your own. You can't come to him another way. Your relationship with God, whether it exists or it doesn't, is in Jesus' hands. Even stronger again are his words in Matthew 21 and verses 42 to 46. End of the parable of the vineyard and the tenants who uh, have usurped the owner's authority. 42, Jesus said to them, he's speaking to the Pharisees, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And he's speaking of himself. He is the stone. It's the stone of prophecy from uh, Psalm 118. And, and he's saying, you cannot oppose me. And to do that would be utter stupidity, the utmost foolishness, and, and it would lead to your destruction. You will be crushed by me. It's no small matter, no small thing, when Jesus says he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's a statement of his all-surpassing supremacy over all things over all lives, over every nation, over the entire universe. 
the universe he sustains by his powerful word. He judges all things. He is the judge of all people. He works in all things. And I think that is both terrifying and wonderful news. It's terrifying because it means no one can stand against him. In Philippians 2, we read in our second reading that the day is coming when every knee shall bow, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, they will bow before him and receive what's due, and his judgment's final. And for those who've defied him, who've believed the lies and lived in blissful fantasy that they don't need him, that judgment is devastating and it is eternal. But Jesus total supreme authority is is actually wonderful news if you're his disciple because it means when he says he can save you when he says he can forgive you when he says he can sustain you he really can because he's got all authority he controls it all when he says you're mine you're his when he says my blood shed for you is enough it's enough and nothing can snatch you from him nothing can separate you from his love at Sandra's funeral on Thursday and the reading that they chose was from Romans 8 Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, neither death nor life, angels or demons or authorities, nor things in the present or things in the future, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Why not? Because he is supreme. Indeed, it's that authority that he has and that he exercises which means that Jesus' final statement in the Great Commission is such a confidence-building word of comfort that will sustain you through, through whatever you go through in life. And I know some of us have gone through some pretty wretched stuff. And it will particularly sustain you in making disciples. What's his final statement? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Because if he's got all authority in heaven and earth, nothing can stop that being true. He says he's with you, he's with you. Jesus isn't ever going to leave us to do it alone. It's his work that we're doing and joining in with. It's his message that we're to speak, his commands that we're calling people to follow, his spirit who's with us, who's going to give us the words to say when we need them. And it's his authority and his presence with us that means his message is not going to return to him empty. That will mean that those who he's chosen to reveal himself and his heavenly father to will come to him and they will receive him. Jesus has his people out there and he will bring them to himself as we go just as he brought us to himself as those who made disciples of us went and spoke and prayed and did as they were commanded. Because Jesus is Lord. Let me just draw out very briefly some final implications of Jesus all-surpassing supremacy and authority for us. There's uh, there's four that I want to draw out. 
First implication. The message that we're sent to proclaim to the world is of his authority, not just of his love and acceptance. And as a result, what we are calling people to is repentance as well as faith. We're calling people to come, stop their rebellion, to stop rejecting the king and to come into his kingdom and be his subjects. And to do that while the armistice is on because there is peace to be had. There is an armistice, but it will end. When we make disciples, we're not asking people to enjoy some wise sayings, to you know, reflect on some you know, Eastern philosophy, you know, wise sayings like in Confucianism or Buddhism. We're not calling people to a new philosophy of life and to intellectual debate. We're, we're calling people to a new eternal reality and a new relationship where Jesus reigns supreme in their lives. Second implication, the process of discipleship doesn't stop when someone turns to Christ. It continues on afterwards. See, we're, discipleship, making disciples is about leading people to Jesus, but also helping them grow to maturity in Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop. We go, okay, job done. See you later. Good, go to church. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's about working with people and shaping them from before right through. Third implication, the kind of disciples where to make and to be ourselves is ones that join in with the Great Commission. That's why our church's mission doesn't stop with making disciples. We're making disciples who make disciples of Jesus. Because when they become his followers, they've got a grasp that this is what he's on about. This is, this is what Jesus is doing in the world. This is what his church is about, right? Going and winning the world for him. Part of becoming his child and followers to join in the mission. Fourth and final implication. If we're to do this task and to do it well, it means that we're going to have to start somehow learning how to get over our inhibitions, right? And, and how to stop dwelling on our insufficiencies and our insecurities and inadequacies. Why not? Who feels insufficient for this task? Who feels inadequate? Right? Who feels nervous? <laughs> And there's lots of things you can do to start getting over your insufficiencies and inadequacies. The, the obvious step is to go and learn how to do it. Get, get equipped, get trained, right? Get Ken's notes from Thursday night. They were, that was an excellent seminar. It was really helpful. People who came on the night said, ah, oh, I know what the blockage is and I know what the next step to take. Nine steps on leading someone to Christ, right? Even just get the notes and read the headings and you'll go, ah, oh, that's how you do it, right? But you can watch the video because we recorded it. Uh, you can get it from Dave. It's on the Facebook members webpage. Uh, or Dave will get it to you on a DVD if you want. Um, that, you know, I mean, that's not the only way. You could read, he recommended some books. Uh, you could start, you could ask your Bible study leader this year to, why don't we do a little training course in how to best explain, just, or sit down and work out how to, how to explain how you became a Christian and why you're a Christian and why you, why you're a believer and, and, or how to explain Jesus to people. Uh, you'll be much more confident if you're prepared, right? If you go in thinking, wow, this is, this is what I'd say to someone who asked me this kind of question or, you know, the, my atheist friend or relative or whatever, you know, maybe I could say this. If you, if you prepare your head, you'll be much more confident. 
But I reckon the best thing we can do to get over our inhibitions and inadequacies and insufficiencies is to focus on Jesus' supreme adequacy. He is the Lord and he is with us. If we know he's with us as we go about his work, it doesn't really matter how fumbling and uh, poorly we feel about ourselves. God, God's doing his work. And the more you reflect on Jesus' greatness, the more you start to forget about your own weakness as you become absorbed and, and transfixed by him. And you're just overflowing. I just want to talk about him with everyone. Jesus, who is Lord of all, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and in earth, the one who is the reason that we live and breathe and whose kingdom we're to seek first as we go about his work. Does, does Jesus dominate your horizons? Are you, are you really sold out on Jesus? He is the Lord. He is supreme. He is majestic. He is glorious. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth. And so he says, go make disciples. Now, I want to do something unusual. I want to invite Pauline. Where's Pauline? Come on up the front. I'm going to ask Pauline to talk about someone else. (laughs) Um, Pauline, um, I don't know if you're nervous about this. Uh, You've had some sad news this week. What, What happened this week? I got a phone call from the nursing home that my mother was 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 dying, and it was really sudden, and there was no indication that she was going to be. She wasn't sick; (laughs) she was full of life, and um, and then the phone call came, ambulance came. It was too late, so. Yeah, it was just a shock, I think. Mm. You, you, you came over yesterday and you were telling you'd been over the nursing home cleaning up the staff. And, yeah. and um, yeah, for a while I'd been praying for her, oh, years for her to become a Christian, years and years. And she had the stubborn heart, of course. She always believed that she was good enough and no way she was getting into heaven and then I brought some presents for the nursing home staff and one, one nurse came up to me who looked after my mother and realised how difficult the job she had and I know how difficult it was and I thanked her particularly and she said, I'm going to take you downstairs to someone who visited your mother regularly and I didn't know about it. I'd actually didn't know who it was and I walked in to see this woman downstairs in a very different part of the nursing home, wasn't on my mother's floor, with Graham and we sat down and the first thing she said to us was how do you get to heaven? And, and, and we said oh well we can't get to heaven on our own, you know, not on a jumbo jet or anything we, we have to rely on the blood of Jesus with no way and she said that is the right answer <laughs> and she said 
I've been put in this home in December. I'm a registered nurse, but I've been put in for a reason. And I went up to your mother and I said to your mother the same question, how to get to heaven? And she couldn't answer it and she said, I led her through the sinner's prayer and told her the way and she prayed after me every line and I'm sure, because she didn't know she died, I told her and she said, well, she said three weeks ago this happened and just Graham and I just cried and cried and cried. We couldn't believe that God could answer the prayer through somebody who he'd brought into the home who was so keen on making disciples. And she also did many others. And that's all she does is sort of say, how do you get to heaven? <laughs> let, me, let me share. And so many people had gone through that prayer. She told me three or four. And my mother was just one of them. And, and I'm eternally grateful to that woman who shared with my mother three weeks ago. And so... I feel that she'd made her peace with God and and it was time to go at 91 and a half. So I just, I'm just overwhelmed at how God is, how great God is, bigger than what we could think. We thought it was all up to us. And God, God just uses people in so many different ways. I'd given my mother Bibles. I'd given her bilingual hymns. I'd done Every, I thought I'd done everything, but God, God knew, and God, God had the perfect timing. So I just. What was this lady's name? Francis. Francis. I mean, Francis is someone who sold out for Jesus, who knows that He is the Lord of all, and knows what a job is here on earth. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Let me pray, Father. I want to thank you for uh, Pauline and Graham, and we thank you for Francis. Thank you for her. Uh, being captured by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, being willing to, to share the, the news of hope and joy in him with anyone. And we thank you for this wonderful news from a few weeks ago. Uh, and thank you for the encouragement it was for Pauline and Graham yesterday. Father, we pray that you would make us people who are so captured by the supremacy and glory and power of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would understand that he is... Uh, the one who everyone's destiny is, is in his hands. And, Father, we pray that we'll be so sold out for him that we would make it our joy uh, and privilege to be those who go make disciples everywhere we go. In whatever we're doing, help us to know uh, how to do it better, help us to be trained and equipped, and help us to grow in this, uh, this greatest of commands you've given us. Amen.